Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this episode, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about why Britain, France and the Ottoman Empire found themselves fighting together against Russia in the Crimea. Professor Jeremy Black, uh, the Crimean War, which uh, began in 1853, followed a long succession of wars between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire, stretching back from the 16th century onwards. Was there a a consistent theme in this enmity between the Turks and the Russians, or was it really just a case of two empires with their tectonic plates uh, running against each other? Um, Well, I think there was, I mean, I'm fascinated that empires think of themselves as tectonic plates. Do you think at the present moment, President Xi and President Biden are thinking, are looking at the geological map? No, um, I think that's an analogy that I would be wary of myself, not least because human volition plays no role in tectonic plates. Um, But you've absolutely hit it on the nail, the Crimean War, as far as those two powers were concerned, though not, of course, as far as the other powers that came into it were concerned, is, as you say, part of a long-standing process that had led to many conflicts, particularly in the 18th century and the early 19th century, the longest in the early 19th century being a war from 1806 to 1812. And I think when you ask, is there a common theme? I suspect what I would say is the common theme was the pursuit of relative advantage through an attempt to dominate what one might call the borderlands and to change the identity of the borderlands. So the borderlands in the uh, mid 17th century is what we would call uh, Ukraine. It was then part of the uh, state of Poland. but also the area under the effective administrational control of Cossacks. Um, I think one would fairly say that by the uh, from the 1680s onwards, it's the state of the Crimean Tatars that's the key element which is contested, and a contest which isn't really settled until um, I would suggest the war of 1768 to 72, the Ottomans try to regain the Crimea in 1787. They fail then. And although the war which is begun with the conflict between the Russians and the Turks in 1853 is called the Crimean War, it is called the Crimean War, not because it began between Russia and the Turks in Crimea. Already by that stage, Crimea was very much part of Russia. And is there a religious component in this between the Ottoman Empire being Muslim and the Russian Orthodox Church? Yes, ideological rivalries and tensions are very significant. Um, It's interesting to consider what we make about them in the modern age. Um, There there was clearly a a religious component um, in the struggle between uh, Nazi Germany, which was in effect Nazism, a form of religion, 
and I think the Western Alliance, um, I think that it's um, not so clear cut as to quite what ideology means in some of the modern day uh, contrast, because if one's arguing it's a contrast between authoritarianism and non-authoritarianism, um, it's not quite clear what we mean by the ideology of authoritarianism. I think things are a bit more complex than that in the case of some modern states, which we might think of in those lights. But certainly um, in the case of the 18th and 19th century, religion is very important. And one of the great problems with much of the classical work on international relations, whether it's called realist or idealist, is that it's found it very difficult often to deal with religious ideology as an important um, uh, aspect of international relations. There has often been an attempt to argue for either a materialist interpretation, you know, that religion is, as it were, a, a, a superstructure, or to argue that as an idealism, it's in some way uh, weak or anachronistic or whatever. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think religion is an important principle, though it is also worth bearing in mind that Russia and the Turks had cooperated at the time of the war of the Second Coalition against the French revolutionaries in the late 1790s, uh, in short, that there are other ideologies in play as well. Mm, mm. Well, uh, of course, the, the Christian holy sites in uh, Palestine are within the Ottoman Empire. Um, what, how important were they as far as the French and the British were concerned? And why, why did the French and British uh, given this religious element, um, not regard the uh, the Islamic nature of the Ottoman Empire to be a problem for, for, for them? Well, that again is a very good question. I mean, religion clearly plays a significant role for mid-19th century France, not least as Napoleon III both seeks to define himself, and in many senses there is the relationship between the eventual relationship between Napoleon I and the Concordat with the papacy to, to think about, um, and also to appeal to conservative sentiment in France and to woo it away from uh, legitimist Bourbon or Orleanist position. So there's no doubt about that. But again, one must be wary of thinking about this as simply being power politics. Uh, although there are episodes with Napoleon III in which there's very much war against co-religionists and it's difficult to see a religious component, one could argue that's the case in Mexico or with his 1859 war against Austria. On the other hand, uh, French expansionism in Vietnam owes a lot to um, cause celebres to deal with the treatment of um, Catholic missionaries there. So, as you correctly say, there is this argument that is made at the time by the French that they need to ensure the safety and position of Catholic uh, priests in the holy places in Jerusalem. This, as you know, causes uh, ma matching pressure in the case for the Russians, for the Orthodox. Now, you ask a very good question about uh, how is this reconcilable for France with its position as a Catholic state? And you might add, if you wanted to take that further, that the French were merrily killing uh, Muslims and being killed by Muslims, one needs to make this clear, in a very bitter war in Algeria that had begun in 1830. 
and that continues with stages right through the um, uh, the 19th century. Um, I think what I would say is that in part here, France um, saw itself in its intervention on behalf of the Turkish Empire as in part protecting the the Christians in the Turkish Empire against whatever it didn't like. And one of the things it saw itself as protecting them against is against what they perceived as, um, uh, as it were, mob violence, which was to be an issue, for example, Catholic mob violence was to be an issue, for example, in Lebanon. But there are also, as you know, non-religious components. The French had seen the Ottoman Empire as an ally um, from certainly the 1530s onwards as a joint opponent against the Habsburgs, both the Austrian Habsburgs and the Spanish Habsburgs. This habit was then translated to seeing the Turks as an ally also against the Russians. And significant interests in France in the late 18th century, the so-called Secret du the diplomacy under Louis XV, and uh, subsequently Vergen, who was foreign minister, had been a long-standing envoy in Constantinople, becomes foreign minister um, in the uh, 1770s and 1780s, and these argue that Russia is a fundamental threat to Europe, um, a kind of metaphysical threat, that it is in some way a barbarian society. Now, obviously, that was not true of the Russian elite or the Russian state. Uh, but that argument, interestingly enough, which you see in Ancien Regime France, um, is also then replicated in the French Revolution and Napoleonic period. Uh, I'm not discussing the rights or wrongs of it, I'm just talking about this ideology. So that for French commentators who saw Russia as, as it were, in some way un-European, non-Western, a threat to a Catholic um, ecclesiology, um, from their perspective, Russia was also a challenge. It was a challenge to Catholics living in places like West Ukraine. Um, and therefore, uh, there was nothing wrong with trying to support another state which might not be Catholic or even Christian, but might, which might be uh, possibly some, some, a state that would, as it were, not be necessarily too harsh to its Christian subjects. And yet um, the French had sat at previous conflicts between the, the Turks and, and the Russians. Um, did, the British were, were led, led by the French in this. The French were, were the major Western European power leading into this conflict. Or what was the power play between uh, um, and the push me pull me between Britain and France? Well, can I take your comment for you? You're a marvellous one, Graham, for slipping in a comment and then asking a question which buries my attempt to maybe answer the question. Um, I think it's fair to say if you look back to the 18th century, the French had provided quite extensive military uh, advice, uh, trainers uh, for the uh, new um, new style units um, for the Turks against the Russians, and had also tried on a number of occasions to put together coalitions 
of Sweden, Poland, and uh, the Turkish Empire as a kind of barriere de l'Est, which was a term used at the time, against Russia. So I think one would fairly say that the Russians had seen very frequently the French as hostile in Eastern Europe. Um, it's equally the case that there was not much the French could do directly militarily, uh, because most of the time, and obviously 1812 proves to be a disastrous exception, they're not able to do very much. Now, you then ask about the British. Um, I, you know, there are a number of arguments that you can make about this, uh, and you could make an argument that this reflects a British concern about uh, Russian um, threats to uh, and challenges to the route to the east, to India, etc. And you can look back on that. And there was some excellent work by Edward Ingram on the development of the eastern question. And I myself have written on the Ochakov crisis in 1791, where Britain nearly goes to war with Russia, including envisaging a, the dispatch of a fleet to the Black Sea, which, you know, which was a very much would have been new. In fact, they didn't have any reliable maps, which causes them a problem. But I think alongside that, as it were, rational account, and one might query the rationality of it in terms of risk, but again, it's essentially supposed to be a rational account. You could also ask whether they were overly influenced by their alliance with France, and that obviously offers you a different patterning. So instead of looking for an Eastern, um, uh, as it were, explanation of British foreign policy, which was Ingram's position that British foreign policy was, was set, as it were, in, in Delhi or by the concerns emanating from and focusing on Delhi, you have a Western European one, and you can then take that argument through and pursue it up to for example, 1914, and, you know, talk about the origins of the First World War, and you can obviously talk about instances earlier, and you can also talk about how in the mid-19th century, on a number of occasions, France tries to push Britain into war uh, in 1861-62 against Mexico, um, in 1862-63 against the American the Union and the, in the Civil War, and British governments say no. They are unwilling, totally unwilling, to um, follow the logic of what Napoleon III wants. So the British had initially participated with the Spaniards and the French in a three-nation blockade and occupation of Vera Cruz because the Mexican government wasn't uh, paying its foreign debts, etc. As the French try and take that into a full-scale intervention in the Mexican Civil War, uh, both the British and the Spaniards pull out. So, you know, British, some British governments and have the skill and the wit to realise that Napoleon III is not a happy bedfellow in international relations. Um, and you could argue that what you see in the Crimean War is a classic example of a feeling that something ought to be done without a sufficient risk analysis of the situation, which you could argue, if you wish to use modern analogies, one has to be careful here, you could argue the same thing's been going on recently in Britain in the last 20 years, that we haven't had a 
um, really serious threat in, you know, in near Britain. So we've got involved in more distant uh, um, areas. Now, in the case of Britain, Russia had played an enormous role in the defeat of Napoleon in 1812 to 15. Russia had been very important to the Second Coalition um, in 1799. Firstly, its absence from the First and the Fourth Coalitions gravely weakened them. Um, and you might argue that a more potent and powerful Russia might well have been helpful in lessening the strategic problems that stemmed from and related to the unification of Germany and subsequent German expansionism. So you might argue, if you want to, and we could discuss this at length because counterfactualism is complex and requires a considerable amount of expertise, you could argue that it's precisely because British policymakers were pursuing a second or third order series of priorities rather than having to think about a first order one that they messed up in the Crimean War. Um, I think, and again, you could argue the same thing is going on at the present moment or, you know, has gone on very, until very recently that, and that the United States made a sensible decision to pivot out of Iraq and Afghanistan in order to focus on China, and that some British commentators, who were stupid, quite frankly, didn't understand what the Americans were doing and preferred to be continually fascinated with second or third order co contingencies. Are we really looking at, at a balance of power thing, um, France and Britain propping up the ailing Ottoman Empire just because they don't want Russia pouring into the eastern Mediterranean uh, and the Middle East? Or um, if that is the case, how extensive or limited were the Anglo-French war aims? Well, again, that's an excellent question. First of all, the Russians had shown considerable capability in the eastern Mediterranean. The Russian fleet had overwintered in the Mediterranean for the first time in 1769 to 70, had then sunk the main Ottoman fleet at Kesme off the island of Kiosk in the um, Aegean in 1770. Uh, Russian forces had been in the eastern Med in the 1790s at Corfu, for example, and indeed, with British support um, in southern Italy during the War of the South uh, of the Second Coalition, in the conflicts in of 1806 to 1812, the Russians had operated south of the Danube as they had in the 1768-74 war, and in the eight, the one in the late 1820s, they got closer to Constantinople overland, and then obviously, as you know, in 1853 at the Battle of Sinope off the north coast of what is modern day Turkey, um, Russian ships um, with using shell guns, sh shell, shells, guns firing shells, made considerable havoc among the Turkish squadron. So Russia, indeed, I think it's fair to say, appeared stronger than the Ottoman Empire. Um, whether that strength was sufficient to trigger anxieties in um, uh, France and Britain is another question. I mean, if you look at the historical trend, you know, for example, the Russians, yes, had sent forces into the Eastern Mediterranean. They'd never actually had the long-term consequences that they had intended. 
um, in the one hand, um, you know, the European powers, the conservative European powers want Russia to be a fundamental guarantor of the European system, as when Russian forces went into Hungary during the 1848-49 rising in order to help suppress, help the Austrians suppress that rising. On the other hand, and, you know, that was not seen as destroying the balance of power. Uh, on the other hand, um, it's not clear what constituted the balance of power in terms of a particular border in the Balkans, or for that matter, the Caucasus, which was another area of uh, Russian expansion at the expense of the Ottomans and uh, allied uh, bodies. So I, I, I think one's got to be careful here. I think it was very easy. I mean, you know, I'm not a Russophile. I think that uh, uh, Russian strength posed problems for Britain. Um, and I think Sir Halford Mackinder, in his you know, great uh, geopolitics paper, which he gave as a lecture in 1904, identifying what we would call the Western portion of Russia as the pivot of Eurasian geopolitics, saw Russia as a challenge. Um, he saw Russia as indeed a threat uh, that was going to be made more significant by the development of railways, and he saw the need in his eyes to limit that. And he saw the really serious challenge as being a alliance between Russia and Germany. Um, given that last phrase, I think if you pause and think about it for a minute, what that also meant was, given the limitations once Germany became unified of British and French forces, although the British did jolly well with their with the French and Dominion forces and the Americans in 1918, but given their problems that they faced, actually Russia was one of the best forms of restraining A, Germany, and B, potentially Russian cooperation with Germany. So either Germany in war or Germany as a threat in the European system. So you then have the issue, which of course is a problematic one, because after all, if you think about it, in 1853-54, um, as Britain moved towards war with Russia, at that stage, Germany was not unified. It was not clear that it would be unified. And if it was unified, it wasn't clear what form that would take. So you might argue to guard against that hypothetical by assuming that Russia should be allowed to expand was foolish. On the other hand, you might say, did the front line of Britain's interests really lie in defending a particular set of um, contingencies in the Black Sea and elsewhere? You asked the question about Britain's bigger war aims. I think it's fair to say that um, the British wish to stop Russian expansionism. Paradoxically, at the very early stage of the war, and in fact, the, the Russians did pull their troops out of the Balkans. So in a sense, Russian expansionism in the short term had stopped before the Crimean War really got going, as far as the British and the French were concerned. And at that point, you have to quite ask what they were fighting about. Mm. Well, fighting, they, fighting is what they did do. The British and French also um, with uh, Sardinian allies. And uh, Turkish um, forces as well. And the Turkish forces as well, of course, arrive um, uh, in the Crimea. There's the ambition to... Uh, seize Sevastopol, the Russian Black Sea naval base, um, which proved 
um, ultimately successful, but very difficult to take after a very long siege. Um, even you know, in, in taking Sevastopol, my, my question really is, uh, and then what? I mean, they, they, they're not going to hold on to Sevastopol forever. So what if the Russians had just said, OK, spend a few more winters in Sevastopol. You can preside over the ruins of Sevastopol. Um, what of it? You know, we're, we're not letting go of anywhere else. So it, it strikes me that the, that the um, to call them allies, just to, as a as a as a, a, a right term, it, it just strikes me that, that there was a a real danger of Russians just just calling the allies bluff in this. Yes, I mean that's a good question and a good point. I think it's fair to say that there are different interpretations of the Crimean War. Um, there is the classic and conventional interpretation, which puts the emphasis on the Crimea itself or Crimea itself, and particularly uh, Sevastopol is important as the base of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, and it's that fleet that had defeated the Turks at Sinope, and it's that fleet which was in a position to send warships from Sevastopol to attack um, you know, Constantinople, which was then the capital of the Ottoman Empire. I think it's also worth saying that Andrew Lambert, and, and British naval, 19th century naval historian of note, argued very strongly in his work that what we had downplayed was the significance of the major fleet sent uh, to the Baltic, that that fleet was a more potentially a more direct threat to the Russians, because obviously St. Petersburg uh, was their capital, and that was their other major naval base instead near Kronstadt nearby, um, that the Russians didn't, as it were, come out to fight, uh, which is a classic instance of the problem of that if you can't force battle on your opponent, they can cause difficulties for you. Um, that, you know, the British operated off the Alland Islands in the Eastern Baltic, off Helsingfors, and in what we would call uh, the Finnish coast. Finland was then part of uh, Grand Duchy under Russia, uh, but did not uh, inflict any really significant problems, though it did cut off Russia, as it were, in its principal commercial arteries. Um, you make a very good point. What do the British think they're doing? Well, in a way, it's analogous, not, not that the Americans would have been pleased with this, it's analogous to the British uh, uh, participation in the War of 1812 against America, 1812 to 15, a war of about the same length, in which the principal motive from the British perspective um, was to protect Britain's naval blockade of continental French-occupied Europe and also to protect um, um, Canada from invasion and was not one of gaining territory from um, uh, the United States. So similarly, um, there wasn't really an intention to gain territory from Russia to, for example, you know, there were, as you may know, operations in the White Sea, there were operations in Kam off Kamchatka in the Russian Far East. There's no real attempt, although there was discussion, but there's no real attempt to establish a significant long-term naval presence in those waters. Um, so in a way, it's a war which I think was misconceived because strategically um, it doesn't really fulfill a clear sense of purpose or with an obvious uh, implementation designed to fulfill that purpose. Um, what is ironic is that the principal criticisms of it are more commonly 
um, tactical and operational. Tactically, most famously, with the charge of the Light Brigade, which is based inherently on the idea that the British were fighting the last war, that these were um, Napoleonic-style uh, tactics on a new battlefield. And operationally, in terms of the organisational deficiencies of the British Army operating in Crimea, and operating at a level that caused high casualty, and also leading to a somewhat ineffective, for a long time, uh, siege of Sebastopol. Now, I think one has to be careful here. It was normal, um, and I discussed this in my military history of Britain, and in my recent history of the British Army from 1688 to 1815, it was normal for the British Army, and indeed the British Navy, to do worse in early campaigns in wars than in subsequent campaigns. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, it takes time to get a system up and running effectively. I mean, the British were not alone in this. Um, there were problems with you know, blooding units, there were problems with turning peacetime systems into wartime uh, systems. And then to, of course, for the British, there is this age old problem that you have to operate at a considerable distance. You're not just operating across contiguous line, land frontiers. So while it is right um, to say it was shameful and commentators who argued it was shameful were correct to do so, whilst it was right to say that the care of the soldiers and sailors was shameful and also militarily very uh, affecting effectiveness. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that there was a significant improvement in standards subsequently, and that in many senses, and you see the same thing, obviously, in the with the Indian mutiny, you see the same thing in the First World War, you see the same thing in the Second World War. And one has to be wary of judging the failures of the initial stages as if they describe the complete system. I mean, and, you know, and on top of that, there are the obvious problems that you're operating in another country on very long communication uh, lines and logistical train supply chain, um, whilst the other side, or admittedly Russian railways were not yet at a stage that they um, that they were to be, whilst the other side has the advantage that they're fighting on home territory. Well, you, you mentioned early the, earlier the accusation that uh, one of the problems of military command was it was refighting the, the previous war, that being the Napoleonic Wars of almost 40 years yeah. earlier. Um, what, what had changed in terms of um, technological innovation and strategy and tactics between Waterloo and Balaclava? Well, huh, um, I think it's fair to say, and again, I might refer you to my book on 19th century warfare. You've got a um, greater lethality of infantry weaponry and of um, artillery. And that means that massed formations, both of infantry and of artillery, in advancing are going to take much heavier casualties. And of course, that remains the case. I mean, you know, we can see that in the uh, uh, Wars of Italian Unification, battles like Solferino, one can see it in the American Civil War, one can see it in the First World War. And I think it's fair to say that a whole host of innovations here um, 
the improvements in um, in ignition with the mini cap, the improvements in the move from shot to bullet, the move from muskets to flintlocks. They weren't all taking place at the same rate and they weren't all complete yet, but they are all having an effect. Um, and that creates considerable difficulties. On top of that, I think it's fair to say, you ask for differences, which I think is a very fair question to ask. I think it's fair to say that if you look at logistical activity for British forces um, in the late 18th, early 19th century, operating at a great distance in an adverse uh, ecology had caused very heavy casualties in other circumstances. One can think, for example, British forces in the West Indies um, in the 1790s. Um, so there are practical problems um, in, in those respects, but also I think it's fair to say you have got a system where people are appointed and promoted in peacetime who are not up to it. And I mean, you know, let's be clear, I think that would be quite true if Britain moved to, um, let's hope it doesn't do so, but I'm not sure that um, a large um, a large component of those who lead British institutions at the present moment would have been up to a challenge comparable that Britain was to have faced between 1939 and 1945. Fortunately for the British in the 1850s, it was possible to change government by peaceful means, which was done, um, and it was possible to change sufficient of the command cadre um, to get through that crisis. I mean, it's also worth bearing in mind that the Anglo-French alliance was not sustained. The French were swiftly building warships, launching a, in effect, a naval race uh, of ironclads against Britain, um, which again exemplifies the situation. Palmerston is soon to be referring to Napoleon III's harbour works at Cherbourg as, you know, presenting the, the danger of a sort of a bridge of steamship ironclads and invading invading southern England, which is why you get these Palmerston follies, so-called. So the 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 British government, having spent its time engaged in a hard war, which was a war of choice, finds itself soon dealing with a much more serious problem. They face a serious rebellion in India, which they hadn't wanted, um, and they then face the prospect of war with France. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of the consequences of this Anglo-French alliance is that it, it doesn't last. Um, I, I wonder how you would compare the quality of French command and French soldiery in the Crimea compared to, to the British. Oh, that's a fascinating question. I think both the French and the British had the problem that you had people in colonial conflict, the French in Algeria, the British in India, who were command familiar, battle trained, um, not always as up to date with the problems of engaging with another European army versus people in the metropolis, France or Britain, who shall we say did not have necessarily such frequent uh, opportunities to to test themselves, um, who were much more adept at being politicians in uniform, as it were, um, and I think 
that sometimes it was an advantage, the same with the Russians, the Russians had a lot of experience fighting non-Western forces. Sometimes that was an advantage, sometimes it wasn't an advantage. One has to be careful here. The French army in Crimea operated pretty well and took the major role, you could argue, in the fall of Sevastopol. Um, France, of course, whereas France, on the other hand, played a much smaller role um, in naval operations uh, and in the operations distant from Crimea. So, you know, it partly depends upon what we are looking at and what we are, how we're trying to gauge effectiveness. Um, I mean, you know, to be fair to the British Army, why on earth should they anticipate war with another European power? And why should they anticipate war at a distance of, uh, you know, of Crimea? I mean, if you're fighting in India, for example, you're fighting, as it were, in with the with a hinterland of parts of India which the British control um, and you're fighting against in sort of relatively familiar terrain and against relatively familiar opponents it's always difficult the British would find this in Malaya in 1941 and in France in 1940 it's always difficult fighting in unfamiliar um unfamiliar terrain against difficult opponents operating in a way with which you are not familiar and and the russians devoted quite a, they provided quite a lot of bulk to their forces in crimea and russian commanders were you know willing to engage uh not at sea but they were willing to engage on land and you know battles like Inkerman's were jolly hard fought I and mean, it was a really difficult battle for both sides one has to say mm-hmm. well in the narrow sense of the term the um turkish british french sardinian alliance wins uh albeit that on both sides the majority of casualties are caused by disease and hardship rather than uh, um the, the shots and bullets of of uh, of their opponents um how was how was the war concluded and the war is concluded on terms that satisfy the um in a way satisfy the british and the french because they want to get out of it um i mean it doesn't stop the um it doesn't stop the situation in which Russia has more strength, so that by the late 1870s, with Russian forces in modern-day Bulgaria and approaching Constantinople, the British are talking about fighting the Russians again. You know, by jingo we will. That is a, a you know the 1877-1878 crisis, and they talk about it again in 1885 with the pension crisis. So it was a short-term palliative. I've got here a quote. This is in my book on a military history of Britain. I mean, this indicates in a way the scale of the situation. Um, the British fired, as uh, the British and the French fired 1,350,000 rounds of artillery ammunition, which is nothing compared to 1915, but is a lot compared to earlier. And one British officer, I found this letter in the manuscript division of the British Library, writes to his beloved now I am so accustomed to the noise that I believe I could go to sleep in a battery when the enemy were firing at it. And I think that gives you an idea of a new physicality. Of course, what you get is um, 
also images of a different war. It's not just the Charge of the Light Brigade, which seems anachronistic, but there's the famous painting by Robert Gibb, The Thin Red Line of 1881, which was based on a report by William Henry Russell of British infantry um, resisting a Russian advance. And he referred to a thin red streak tipped with steel. So in other words, what you've actually got is images of war that are important, images both of incompetence, um, which link to the sort of more general sense that government is adrift. You know, you can think of Dickens and the Circumlocution Office and so on. So you've got links, you know, of incompetence, but also images of resolve, of bravery and of resolution. And for both sides, I mean, at Inkerman, the Russian columns are attacking in the face of British infantrymen firing with Enfield rifles, new model rifles, which are putting a lot of damage on the on the Russians who are trying to close to bayonet, uh, to bayonet uh, length. Um, of course, the Russians don't have the kind of press and parliament to put criticism on them that the British have as a counterpart, which I suppose takes us back to where we're beginning, which is how do you assess authoritarian as opposed to non-authoritarian governments, because authoritarian governments don't have to face uh, the, um, they have to face a hostile public scrutiny, but they don't have to face it in as politically damaging and incessant a fashion as you do in liberal societies, such as the ones we live in. Well, I'd, I'd like us um, to conclude by looking at the consequences of the Crimean War, consequences in the, in the years immediately following, but also consequences in terms of what uh, implications there are to be learned for the present day. Well, I think that's a good idea because I think it would be useful to take this on, you know, these other things on to look at maybe the wars within India and China, which become quite dramatic um, by, you know, within five years. I think what I would say is that the uh, British army and the French army, like most armies, very much reflected and responded to immediate issues and problems. So the British and the French armies had been, like the Russian army, colonial armies engaged in fighting with non-Western forces. The Russians, of course, had gone into Hungary and had fought Polish insurgents in the early 1830s, but the Russians had not been fighting a full-scale um, Western force um, of a based on an organized state um, since essentially, like the like the British and the French, since essentially the um, the uh, Napoleonic Wars, you know, the French had been engaged in smaller operations subsequently in Europe and invasion of Spain in 1823, for example. But I think it's fair to say that what you've got here is an unexpected war for all three powers, um, a war that's unnecessary. Um, a war that, in a sense, and um, you know, it's terribly easy to draw attention to trends. I mean, it's certainly strained relations between Austria and Russia, which helps in the rise of Prussia, for example. But I think what one could fairly say is many men lost their lives 
um, um, but without it having an enormous amount of consequence in either the short or the long term. And that might seem shocking to you, but it's actually true of a lot of military history. Um, now, as far as the link to the present is concerned, um, I think what it shows is one must be wary of taking second order priorities and leading oneself into a major conflict, A, because of the human losses and loss of resource, B, because you crowd out the possibility of responding to a first order crisis in that period. Um, and lastly, because your military then becomes configured to engage in a particular type of war, which might not be the appropriate one. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, it's very easy to say that it's obviously there's a matter of debate involved as to what is first, second, third order contingencies and how one relates between them. But that is why strategy is an important subject. And I'm I'm very struck. Um, I mean, I recently heard, I mean, I, I can't obviously name the person because this was, you know, a um, uh, as a, a Chatham House rules, but I was recently at a dinner party in London of uh, eight uh, figures, um, um, seven of them political and me, um, and um, the MPs present were very sensible in their views, but there was a rather rash individual um, who actually said, uh, apropos of threats to Britain, he and uh, said, I think, and he said this more than once, so it obviously was an E-Day fix of his, I think the uh, Russians, and this was the phrase he used, should be smacked in the mouth. And he said the same thing of the Chinese. And I just thought, now look, I mean, people need to think very carefully in terms of relative risk, in terms of how you operate and use deterrence, how you maintain efficiency and effectiveness, how you think through the desire to affect in war and peace, um, a threat and good relations, the views of others. And I'm not sure one can fairly say that either the British or the French or the Russians did so in the 1850s. I think it was a failure of statecraft on the part of all of them. And I think we have to be very careful to make sure we don't do the same today and that we don't encourage others to make the same mistakes about ourselves. Well, with that warning about the dangers of riding into the Valley of Death, uh, Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much indeed. Uh, actually, can I just come back to you on that? I'm trying not to be difficult, Graham. Um, I'm not a pacifist. There can be need to fight in circumstances, and there can be need to understand that. And it is a shallow person. I, I'm not saying you're shallow, uh, but it's a shallow person. You see all too many of these with clerical commentators. You see all too many of these with people on the left who assume that you can somehow solve all problems just by talking about it and spreading and smearing sentiment all over the place. That is not the case. There is need for a hard-edged realism, but a hard-edged realism is not helped by stupid people who do not understand that they have to use language, threats, 